My name is Luke Bretherton, and this is the Listen, Organise, Act podcast, which looks at the history and contemporary practice of organising in democratic politics. Organising requires strategy, tactics and shared action to bring about change. But what strategies help us bring into being a more just and generous world? And what kinds of tactics and coordinated action help to achieve our strategic goals? To discuss these questions with me are Sandy Horwitt and Kathleen Patron. Sandy is an author, educator and campaigner who has written extensively about organising. He wrote the definitive biography of the godfather of community organising, Saul Alinsky. Kathleen is the lead organiser of Greater Boston Interfaith Organisation, GBIO, where most recently she's focused on police reform and equitable access to healthcare. Sandy observed and wrote about, and Kathleen was directly involved in, the work of an IF coalition in Milwaukee called Common Ground. In the wake of the 2007 and 08 financial crisis, Common Ground led a successful campaign to address the foreclosure crisis in that city. I'll be discussing this campaign with them as it serves as a great case study for a wider discussion of the relationship between strategy, tactics and different forms of shared action in organising. So join me now for this episode of the Listen, Organise, Act podcast. Sandy, Kathleen, great to have you with me on the Listen, Organise, Act podcast. Thank you so much for being with me uh, today. And um, We're going to be focusing on strategy, tactics and direct action. And through the Milwaukee uh, Common Ground campaign, uh, as the kind of case study to think about that things. And Kathleen, you were very involved in that as an organiser. And Sandy, you kind of followed it very closely and wrote about it in great de- in detail, uh, some terrific articles. Kathleen, as the backdrop to the development of the Common Ground response to the foreclosure crisis, can you tell me a little bit about Milwaukee in the, in the mid-noughties and how the economic crisis of 2007, 2008 hit the, hit the city? Yeah, so Milwaukee uh, historically has been a city of immigrants, uh, German, Italian, Irish, uh, and also the a city of immigrants in terms of the great migration of uh, Black African-Americans migrating up from the South. And the big attraction was the, the manufacturing and the industry in Milwaukee. Uh, A.O. Smith, the car company, uh, uh, Bruce Iris, built the shovels that dug the Panama Canal. Uh, so those were good jobs. They were union jobs. Um, so people were able to move to the city of Milwaukee, get a good job, buy a house, raise a family, uh, the American dream. Right. And the backdrop for this campaign was in 2000, you know, the 2000s, a lot of, especially predominantly both white and working class uh, African-Americans owned their homes outright. Right. And these were beautiful craftsmen, German built, gorgeous, gorgeous homes. Right. And what happened was uh, during the, the peak of the foreclosure crisis, companies like Countrywide went door to door and said, hey, you know, do you want to take a mortgage out on your fully paid house? And of course, a lot of families were like, yes, I would love to send my child to college or my grandchild to college, took loans out or refinance. Um, So door to door predatory lending. And uh, that really wiped out neighborhoods in Milwaukee. So, Sandy, can you remind listeners, like, 
some of the kind of broader underlying issues affecting housing and banking that kind of came to a head in 2000, 2007, 2008, and its aftermath, just to give it a bit of context for the campaign itself. Well, there was a very uh, hot housing market around the country in the early 2000s. And um, there was a, a little niche that developed and it became a big niche. Uh, and that was subprime, the subprime mortgage world. And that was, as Kathleen has already kind of touched on, that was an attempt to get people to either refinance uh, or to buy a house using a subprime mortgage, which was not the standard kind of uh, mortgage that most people uh, most that most people have. Uh, when, meaning that the the terms of the mortgage were not very favorable. There was a teaser interest rate that got people hooked in, but the rate was often variable, meaning it would go up over the course of the mortgage. And as long as the housing market was robust and the value of your house continued to appreciate, uh, it all sort of made sense. I might also add that those people who went door to door that Kathleen referred to trying to sign people up to take out a mortgage on their house, even their their already paid up house, um, that a lot of those applications were falsified by people representing the banks or other lenders uh, because a lot of people who took out mortgages in the subprime period were really not economically qualified. And, you know, being an ordinary person, you would think, as we all do, I think, when you go to a lending institution, they want to make sure that you can pay your monthly mortgage. Well, this was just sort of the opposite, that the lending institutions wanted to sign people up because there was another kind of industry that developed, and that was packaging all of these subprime mortgages, turning them into securities, and then selling them to investors. And this was this was going on by 2006 in the millions around the country. It was just a phenomenal growth of a securities part of the, the banking world. And a lot of this came out of the deregulation of banking in the 1990, late 1990s, 1999 in particular, um, because banks normally would not have gotten into this kind of uh, this kind of very risky activity. So when the housing market started to crash, meaning the the bubble burst in early 2007, a lot of these people could not afford to continue paying their mortgages. And in Milwaukee, in about a four or five year period, from 2007 to about 2011, there were 20,000 foreclosures, which was just remarkable in a period that uh, that short. Um, and uh, suddenly, in all those neighborhoods that Kathleen referred to, when you walked the streets, you saw vacant, abandoned housing, many of them falling into bad disrepair because the banks, for quite as long as they could get away with it, kind of ignored these foreclosed houses. Right. So there's something there about how the kind of ordinary world of affections and kind of people's housings and savings were taken up from Milwaukee into a kind of globalized financial system. And that then when you know problems occurred in that system, they were left, left high and dry. I, I just want to kind of press into that dynamic a bit. And Kathleen, 
we can tend to look at an issue like housing and mortgages in strictly kind of economistic ways. And, um, but in a sense, that's kind of part of the problem. A house isn't just a commodity or a debt leverage instrument as the kind of back banks tended to treat them. Neither is house merely kind of roof over one's head or a place of shelter. You know, for all of us, it's a home and it's a place of intimacy and nurture and contributes to a kind of broader realm of affection through which people make a life together and create a neighborhood. Can you say something about this kind of broader, more intangible, but but in many ways more significant understanding of housing and how it played into the development of the campaign? And how did the banks view houses? And how did this contrast with how the kind of people who lived in them viewed the house as a home? Yeah, I mean, the the American dream often gets equated with owning a home. And I will say, this is an interesting podcast to do at this time. My husband and I just got an accepted offer on our own first home that we've ever purchased. And so this hits very close to home. Uh, For me, we just bought a home here in East Boston. And I've been reflecting on this for my own life, but it's really about putting down roots. It's about belonging. It's about ownership, not just about a piece of property, but I believe it's also ownership in the community that you've decided to live and invest your time in. Um, I believe owning a home for many people and for myself is is about having some political power in that jurisdiction as well. Uh, one of the big conversations post foreclosure crisis, one of the big questions in Sherman Park was, are you a renter or are you an owner? And renters often had uh, a lot of stigma against them as you don't own this place, this community as much as we do. And that all plays up, plays together in the political fabric of how a place operates and home ownership or the lack thereof plays into plays into ownership of a whole community and this political power and how, how a place functions. Right. Uh, and that, that fabric of either a neighborhood or a city uh, is directly tied to home ownership. And when you wipe that out, you're wiping out a whole ecosystem of, of care and, and who really runs this place. Right um, right. And that's not something, you know, at the bank level in terms of global industry, it's just not something that they think about yeah. whatsoever. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that kind of the ways in which home ownership is, is enmeshed in an ecology not just of affections of individual families, but a whole ecology of both political, social, economic life. And so you wipe out that base, it will, you know, you know, eviscerate that broader ecology of relations and the kind of political economic life that undergirds that. Well, absolutely. And when we talk about the three sectors of society, the market, government, and civic, and how, you know, when you read any uh, de Tocqueville, it's those three entities that really negotiate and are, are the body politic of how a democracy functions. And when the market essentially wipes out home ownership in a lot of ways, you're wiping out and you're crumbling that civic sector in a way that makes negotiation around the common good between those three entities much more difficult, much, much more difficult. And we should also say when you when you prohibit access to that in, in practices, you know, previous banking practices like redlining, particularly Absolutely. African-American communities, you're preventing then also, it's not just economic access and building up equity. It's also then a, a secure base for political agency in those communities as well. And I think that's one of the kind of, uh, you know, 
why redlining, part of the reason why redlining was issues is both the economic equity issue, but there's also the political agency aspect that that, that home ownership can allow. And obviously we can have broader debates about the place of property and all the rest of it, but actually in this, the, the realities of American context, that that kind of indexing of political agency and, and property ownership, you know, are very key to having standing in, in the broader political economy. So um, what does the kind of campaign and the issues it addressed tell us more broadly about this kind of struggle? We've touched on it already, but this struggle between money and people and the kind of question of whether money serves human flourishing or whether humans are made to serve money. And why do we get so confused about that relationship and how that relationship should go? Well, what's really extraordinary in thinking back now a little more than 10 years is how effective Common Ground was as an upstart organization. It was founded in 2008, and a lot of the activity in pressing the biggest banks in the country, and in the case of of Deutsche Bank, one of the biggest banks in the world, to acknowledge that they had created a problem. There was a problem, a serious problem, economic as well as community-based in a, in a significant city like Milwaukee and many other Milwaukee's around the country. And the banks wanted to ignore this. And using some of Alinsky's uh, tactics and starting with the premise that when it came to political power, it was uh, either organized money or organized people that really made the difference. And so Common Ground engaged in just extraordinary tactics for just this baby kind of an organization, just two or three years old. And of course, within the organization, it's become kind of legendary that one of those tactics was to send two people from Common Ground, the lead organizer and a citizen leader, to the annual meeting of Deutsche Bank in Frankfurt, Germany, to confront the CEO of Josef Ackerman and to tell him that in Milwaukee, Germans built that city and now a German bank was destroying that city. Uh, at the time, Deutsche Bank had over 17,000 housing code violations of houses that they owned or controlled in Milwaukee. And yet they would not sit down and talk with either the city or Common Ground about this problem until Common Ground sent representatives to Frankfurt, Germany at the annual Deutsche Bank meeting and got a commitment from the CEO of Deutsche Bank to begin a conversation in Milwaukee. So I think it's a good good example of how organized people, even an upstart organization like Common Ground at the time, can confront money and uh, and maybe win at least uh, some some part of a victory. Kathleen, can you say a little bit? Sandy's given us a kind of that that broader overview, um, you know, of, of of the direction of the campaign. Can you tell us a little bit about the origin story of the Common Ground campaign and how did it emerge from a process of organising? Sure. So as Sandy said, uh, Common Ground founded in around 2006, and uh, we started the organizing cycle process, which always starts with listening, whether that's relational meetings, small group listening sessions or house meetings or neighborhood walks. And so we started that process uh, and it was really the origins were really around neighborhood walks and people commenting on uh, a spike in crime rate. 
And we said, what's contributing to that? What's going on? And people said, you know, look at this empty, dilapidated home next to mine. Uh, There's people squatting in it. There's illegal activity. Many of the neighborhoods, my neighborhoods were on fire, literally on fire with empty homes going up in flames at night. And that's, it was through that process of really engaging with people, talking with people, hearing their stories, uh, people inside of our congregations that were struggling with losing their homes, that we moved from this issue of crime to what is, who owns that vacant, abandoned home? Why is it not secure? Why is it not boarded up? Uh, who's responsible here for our community that's on fire? And so it, it really started through the process of listening and and it's through that process of listening, we're able to then cut an issue. Right. And the issue was, uh, why does Deutsche Bank, at that point, we looked into it and it's, why does Deutsche Bank own the majority of these empty homes in Milwaukee? How did you build on that to develop a kind of deeper picture and get intelligence about the ownership structures who, you know, it wasn't just Deutsche Bank, there's Wells Fargo, other, other kinds of banks. How did you kind of use research actions in developing the campaign and research more generally in, in terms of working out who the target was going to be? So since we're going to be talking a lot about action in this podcast, and this is really my, I'm happy to be doing this because action is my favorite part of this work. Uh, you really go into action for three reasons. One is to get a reaction, which we'll talk about a little later. Two is to alter the relationship. And then third is to learn. And it's important to have that context as you think about a research action. And it is, in fact, an action because one of the reasons is you go into action to learn. Uh, That's very different from doing a whole bunch of analysis online or uh, trying to understand it from reading a lot. Action means really going into a live meeting with a group of leaders trying to dig through this and, and learn. And, it, and it's difficult for the ordinary person to want to take that step and go into action. And so research actions are really important for a couple of reasons. One, it's a, leadership, it's, it's a way for people to grow in their leadership. Uh, and that's why we, we do these meetings. It's not just to learn, it's to, get, it's to help people grow and develop as public people. And it's a really important first step for many leaders who have never done this. I was one of them, but I knew there was a big problem and I I saw my neighborhood on fire. And that research action helped me learn how to act in the world. But then second, yes, we met with local banks. We learned a lot about the foreclosure crisis. We met with local and state legislators. We met with developers. We tried to really understand how did this happen? Uh, and what are the impacts? And so we learned a lot about how to how to actually grab hold of this and, and cut the issue as well. No, that's fantastic. That, that, that's and I think it's really important what you say about the research action also being a kind of training ground for leaders and getting used to kind of having public relationships with people. And, and it's more than simply reading about stuff on online or reading books or, or, or whatever. That's it's, it's a formative process of leadership development. Um, so, Sandy, can you tell me something then, you know, you, you've mentioned the, this kind of infamous action of going to, to Frankfurt, Germany. What were some of the steps that led then into that boardroom meeting, that general meeting in Frankfurt in Germany, um, thousands of miles away. What were kind of steps that led up to that in terms of the actions that took place? Well, 
Kathleen has touched on some of the actions that led up to the trip to Frankfurt, Germany, to confront uh, Deutsche Bank uh, at the annual meeting. And that is the scope of the problem and how many how many abandoned houses that were ruining neighborhoods in Milwaukee were either serviced or owned by Deutsche Bank. And Deutsche Bank uh, wouldn't talk to anybody. The city of Milwaukee, uh, from the mayor on down, couldn't get uh, meaningful meetings with any of these national big banks that in some cases had you know, had local banks, not Deutsche Bank, didn't have a retail operation in Milwaukee, but Wells Fargo certainly did, and U.S. Bank, and so forth. So um, it was it was really a result of all of the research actions that Kathleen talked about, and then not being able to get a meaningful negotiating uh, session started with any of the banks at this particular stage that led to that trip to Frankfurt. And the next year, in 2011, I tagged along when another Common Ground delegation did something very similar at the Wells Fargo annual meeting in San Francisco. And uh, one of the uh, Common Ground citizen leaders, Mary Upchek, um, had owned stock in Wells Fargo for generations through her family. Uh, She lived in a small Wisconsin town growing up north of Milwaukee, and her father owned stock in the local bank, which somewhere along the way was purchased by Wells Fargo. So here was an elderly woman standing up and confronting the CEO of the, I think Wells Fargo is the fourth largest bank in the United States, and the biggest bank when it came to, to mortgages. And a bank that's also was fined later $2 billion for its various nefarious practices of misleading people to sign up for subprime mortgages. And it was just a thrilling thing to see ordinary people confronting the CEO of one of the country's biggest, most powerful banks. And because of that, generating the beginning of a sit-down negotiating session back in Milwaukee. Kathleen, one of one of Alinsky's rules for organizing is that the price of a successful attack is a constructive alternative. What was what was the constructive alternative you kind of eventually proposed to Deutsche Bank and Wells Fargo and the, and the others? And, and what was the end result of the campaign? Yeah, so we were very clear, and our our mantra was "You broke it, you fix it." Right. Uh, top level, and what that really meant was providing a fix it alternative. And what we proposed very, very clearly was that we wanted money in a pot so that we could acquire rehab and sell the homes uh, block by block in a really concerted strategy. Uh, Second was once the homes were rehabbed, we wanted dedicated mortgage funding or mortgage funds so that people could actually receive a quality mortgage and purchase the rehabbed homes. And then last was we asked for funding to create uh, for a job creation program that people would actually be paid to maintain the empty homes, securing them, cleaning them up, cutting the grass, et cetera. And so the end result uh, was, uh, Sandy, remind me, was it 33.4, $33.8 million 
in a mix of those three parts, right. which then were used to start what was called the Milwaukee Rising Program, where we actually ended up rehabbing, selling uh, over 100 homes just in the Sherman Park neighborhood going block by block. So by proposing that alternative, we were able to actually get them to react around our specifics. Just want to dig deeper into the kind of questions of, of kind of tactics and strategy and, and, and things like that. Um, there's a, a friend of mine has a great way of summarizing Machiavelli's great in kind of corpus on political writing is that it summarizes it as basically it's action in time, uh, which is, I think, an important thing to remember about, about politics. And it's action in time, but it entails questions of when, where, how, with whom to act in order to kind of bring about purposeful change and to act effectively in time with a purpose towards a specific goal takes a strategy. It can't be kind of random or, or spontaneous. Sandy, can you can you say a little bit about um, how the kind of strategy that led to the focus on Deutsche Bank and the other banks, how did that develop? Um, and, and more broadly, you know, what is a strategy and, and how does one develop one in organizing? Well, I think it, uh, strategy, a good strategy, uh, has to be creative. Um, uh, Lewinsky used to joke that uh, young organizers would carry around his first book, Reveille for Radicals, and try to look for lessons on pages and then just uh, sort of parrot what they read. And that's not what an organizer who is as good as Kathleen is does. Yes, you learn the general principles that Alinsky and others have written about over the years. But what separates mundane and not really very effective organizing from the level of organizing that Kathleen does is creativity. And it's coming up with an idea that no one ever thought of before. No one really ever thought in Milwaukee of going 4,000 miles to Frankfurt, Germany to confront the CEO of the second largest bank in the world over what they were doing to this German-created city in, in Milwaukee. So it's, it's really coming up with, with something that hasn't been done before often, even though it may be based on, on principles that are familiar, but the actual implementation is something that really requires some real creativity. So, Kathleen, could you give us a more kind of more, like, talk about, you know, in your view as an organizer, what is a strategy and how does it contrast to a tactic? Yeah, so I've actually developed some training around this, which I found very, very helpful in terms of uh, teaching our membership about the difference really between mission, strategy, and tactics. Right. Uh, and I completely agree with Sandy. A lot of it is around creativity. A lot of it is around uh, trying to parse these things out for people so that they understand the difference between all three. Uh, I would say, first and foremost, you have to add mission before strategy because our mission of our organizations is about building power, first and foremost, very clear. And people miss that part. <laughs> We'll talk more about that later, I'm sure, when it comes to Occupy Wall Street, but and and how we were able to consistently and persistently act over time. This campaign took about two and a half years. If you don't pay attention to your mission, which is we are building power first and foremost and developing leaders who have the ability to act, if you miss that completely, you you don't it doesn't matter what your strategy is. It doesn't matter what your tactics are. 
And so you have to remember, are we building power? Um, and did we build enough power before we took on this campaign? And then second, I would say strategy is the, it's the creative way of how you get from point A to point Z once you have some power. So for example, we went directly after the big banks as a corporate target, as a strategy. Another strategy we could have employed was going to the state of Wisconsin's legislature, right? And legislating some sort of change. Um, those are two very different strategies that can get you to a similar end. And you pick the strategy based on the power that you have um, and, and by doing power analysis. So for example, in, in Milwaukee, a democratically controlled city in a very Republican, Republican controlled state and common ground being simply in the four counties around in Milwaukee and around Milwaukee, that's where we had our power and we didn't have power at the state level with a Republican controlled legislature. That strategy, once you do a power analysis would not have actually worked. And so our strategy was let's go directly to the corporate, to the corporate um, sector, to corporate power and make demands. And then last with tactics, we talk in organizing about action and reaction and tactics are where action and reaction happen. It's the, that's where a lot of creativity happens. It's very fluid. Your tactics um, ebb and flow over time within, within that strategy. Uh, power doesn't change. We're building power doesn't change. Your strategy may change, but you can't shift strategy too much. Otherwise you won't get something done. You wanna pick one based on power analysis that works. And then your tactics change a lot over time. Um, by acting, reacting, acting, and reacting. So how how did you how do you come to choose certain kinds of tactics then in that process? The kind of practical reasoning to work out like this kind of tactic will get this kind of reaction and get us further towards achieving our strategic goals. How, how do you make those kinds of judgments? Yeah, so you go into action to get specific reactions from a target, and. This is the part that gets people really nervous because people do, and leaders do want, they want stability. One of the reasons people don't act in public life is because they're nervous about the gray areas. And this is where it gets a little bit tricky, where people, you go into action and you try something, and then you have to see how the world reacts to you. And you organize off that reaction. So the tactics that you choose are you put yourself out there in the world. That's why research actions are really important right away to get people used to that process. Let's go. Let's see if we can get a meeting with this bank. Uh, let's see if we can get a meeting with this politician. Let's see how they react to us in the meeting. So then when you when you get into the actual campaign work, uh, and start running actions and getting reactions, you have some practice with that. So for example, with Common Ground, we sent letters to all of the big banks uh, trying to get a meeting with them. And that was a first action. It was a first tactic. It was let's send a letter and see if we can get a reaction. And Wells Fargo specifically sent a letter back saying, thank you Common Ground for the inquiry about your mortgage. Somebody will be getting back to you. So that was a reaction. And then you organize off of the reaction. So action, reaction, and you, and you decide the tactic based on the reaction that you get. And it's a back and forth dance for a long time until you can actually get somewhere and, and you learn to escalate 
Um, shortly after that, there was a very large press conference in front of Wells Fargo uh, with big pictures saying, we demand you meet with us. Read that letter out loud, <laughs> said, this isn't good enough. <laughs> so so you, you action, reaction, you organize off the reaction and we could, you know, the rest of the story goes from there right, over right. two and a half years. Luke, I might just add uh, one extra point to what uh, Kathleen said, that all of these often mundane research actions of going and meeting with a second level vice president at whatever institution is turns out to be a terrific learning experience. And Common Ground in this campaign on foreclosures literally had a couple hundred citizen leaders who had never done this sort of thing before, spending hundreds of hours collectively learning about banking, about uh, this, how the city responded, all of the, the messy details that were part of this whole terrible housing foreclosure disaster. In Rules for Radicals, Zelensky sets out a number of rules that make for good tactics. Um, it's obviously been a hugely influential kind of text in, in organising circles over, over many years. His second rule there is never go outside the experience of your people, while the third rule is wherever possible, go outside the experience of the enemy. Why are these important? And, and how did the campaign follow these rules? You know, How did they play out in terms of this campaign? I think uh, staying within the experience of your, your people uh, means that you do things, for example, if you're dealing with uh, sort of working class or middle class people who are very law abiding and have learned you know, not to break rules, is that when you do your research action, you do things in that same vein. You uh, send a letter asking for a meeting. You do things that we, for lack of a better word here, that might be polite as opposed to being very uh, obnoxious right off the bat. Now, later, being more confrontational is something that people learn that the old-fashioned way of, of asking, may I please, and getting back the letter that Kathleen referred to before from from Wells Fargo just blowing you off is not going to achieve your ends. But staying within the experience of your own people, at at least initially, is really important and mandatory if you're going to have a successful organization. And on the other end of that, going outside of your enemy's experience, I think, you know, being confronted at an annual meeting by people who, in the case of Deutsche Bank, people from Milwaukee came all that way and got press coverage saying that this otherwise highfalutin bank was destroying a city in the United States was something that Deutsche Bank really did not know quite what to do with. And if anything, the CEO Ackerman, if we want to be hard-nosed about it, kind of panicked on the spot and immediately said he was he was designating his top lawyer to go to Milwaukee and to meet with Common Ground. And in fact, there was such a meeting. So that that was probably something outside of the experience of the CEO of one of the world's most powerful corporations. Uh, Kathleen, do you have any any further reflections just on that point? Yeah, I think, again, this is why you have to be really clear from the outset that our work with organizing is really, again, it's about building power and you build power by developing leaders. And if you use a tactic that is outside of the experience of your people, 
oftentimes that doesn't work um, for all the reasons Sandy mentioned. And it, it goes against the rule of, are we, are we developing leaders? Are we building power? Uh, and we'll talk, I'll talk more about this later, but whenever possible going outside the experience of your enemy, I think it has a lot to do with dominant power and consent and how you think about breaking consent. Just to repeat and to emphasize again, uh, the Deutsche Bank uh, episode, you know, actually Common Ground, as Kathleen just sort of implied, made two trips to Frankfurt at the annual meeting because the first one was not particularly productive. And it was at the second one when the speaker for Common Ground looked at the Joseph Ackerman, the CEO, right from close distance, and said, German immigrants built Milwaukee, and now a German bank is destroying Milwaukee. And no one ever talked publicly, probably, to the CEO of Deutsche Bank like that, or not not often. And he he reacted instantly to that ridicule. And it, it, that did turn out to be more productive as far as a follow-up you know, meeting later in, in Milwaukee. Right. Daniel, just want to go back. I mean, again, there's a kind of key rule in organizing of, of keep the pressure on. And you've talked about the variety of tactics. You, you did that. You know, as you said, it's a two and a half year year process till you, you got to the settlement. Um, how did you kind of keep the energy up amongst the leaders and, and keep that sense of momentum uh, and, and the kind of through the evaluation, the different tactics and, and then the action reaction process? But, but there's a, there's a, there is a kind of question of how do you keep the focus? How do you keep the energy? How, how did you kind of address some of those issues? I think that in our work, this is, again, where evaluation always plays a key role and that you are always along the way evaluating these tactics or the actions that you take. And it's within that evaluation process that you are able to garner the small victories or the small wins. So, you know, the the jump from a form letter from Wells Fargo to a meeting accepts at Wells Fargo accepting a meeting, even if it was a low-level power person, evaluating that reaction as a win, we've moved up the power pattern, gives people a lot of energy. And being able to, within the broader campaign, evaluate the smaller smaller wins is really, really important. Uh, And then then it's escalating tactics over time. Um, Another rule in organizing, the best person to organize your base or your people is the opposition. And so each moment and each meeting where we're actually face to face with Wells Fargo, with Deutsche Bank, um, and they disrespect our people or derecognize our people provides incredible energy. It's it's the Bull Connor uh, strategy no. where Bull Connor is on the news just acting absolutely horrific. And that actually or, organizes your people. And so this, I think, directly connects with going outside the experience of your enemy, because what you're trying to do is get them to react in a way that moves you forward with the campaign, but then also pisses off the leaders, um, because nothing is better than a great target. So, for example, uh, you know, Sandy might mention this some more, but the first time that we actually did confront Dr. Ackerman at, at Deutsche Bank, uh, Dr. Sue Jaimo from St. Catherine uh, Parish in Sherman Park, you know, she did it in German, but 
they were there for like hours, I guess. And then uh, the they actually clo- shut the mic off on her right. when she was speaking right. the first time. And so what a better yeah. what a better action to keep the energy up of our people say, you know, so that's, that's what makes people want to escalate then. And so, you know, you do want to do a power analysis and think about your target, think about how they'll react and then get people into a fight that, uh, that just keeps them going. And you just keep doing that until you eventually move up the power pattern and and you win. That's a key aspect of the, the, the target and their kind of egregious, disrespectful rudeness can actually be the beta best way of, of organizing and, and because it suddenly it goes back to the thing about the kind of false glory it reve- it's an it's a it's a act of revelation it shows actually what what power really thinks they they claim to be your friend they're really not your friend and so therefore the fight for recognition to ensure that they are taking notice of you, they are respecting you, they are in conversation with you, is that that then becomes is, is very starkly um, kind of represented in that in that moment, and those are often key moments, transformative moments in in campaigns. So, um, kind of want to talk to you both a little bit about the kind of some of the different kinds of actions the campaign involves. You talked about research actions, were there public hearings, accountability assemblies? Um, obviously, we've got the disruptive, um, uh, 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 direct action of going to the uh, the the general general annual general meetings of these banks. But in between that, like, what were some of the other forms of public action that that were involved, Kathleen? Uh, so one action that we took, one of the first actions we took with Deutsche Bank was to organize a bus full of people to actually go down to the German consulate and demand that the uh, that we get a meeting with Deutsche Bank through going to the German consulate right. in Chicago. We took a busload of people, you broke it, you fix it, big signs of houses owned by Deutsche Bank. And the reason we targeted, and this is again, where power analysis is very important, that strategy piece is very important, is because the German government is actually the largest, was the largest customer of Deutsche Bank. Oh, and so okay. that was the purpose of that action. Uh, and again, it was, we were trying to move from total derecognition, no, you know, no meeting whatsoever. Let's try this tactic uh, to get to Deutsche Bank to actually get a meeting. So that was one creative um creative tactic. Um, and this question of going to, in terms of the direct action of going to shareholder meetings, Sandy, that, that's not a kind of new, you know, acting on shareholder meetings, is, isn't, that isn't a new tactic. Um, it's kind of pioneered by Linsky and others in, in the 1960s. Uh, I think they had churches buy proxy shares as part of a strategy to challenge racist uh, racist employment practices in Kodak in in Rochester, can you tell us a little bit about that history, about that particular campaign, and and how kind of shareholder proxy came about, and that, you know, some something of how it developed? Yes, well, and here's a good example of the uh, use of ridicule as well, Luke. Yes, Alinsky was one of the first, if not the first, to have an organized uh, effort at a shareholders meeting of a major corporation, Eastman Kodak, which our younger listeners may not think of as a major corporation these days, but when when color film 
and cameras uh, that used film were such a big part of American life. It was Kodak film that everybody bought. I still have a film camera, so I still use Kodak film. But uh, yes, yeah, so the, the, the issue was hiring the hardcore unemployed by the Alinsky organization in Rochester that would recruit and train with Kodak's help and and with Kodak promising jobs for a significant number of unemployed people. And Kodak refused to negotiate. And so Alinsky came up with the idea of rounding up stock proxies from church organizations around the country. Uh, the Unitarians in particular, I remember, had uh, quite a good holding of Kodak stock. And uh, and then descending on Flemington, New Jersey, where Kodak had its annual meeting to confront very much like Deutsche Bank was confronted decades later, the CEO and to embarrass Kodak into doing something for unemployed people in their hometown. And uh, Alinsky's line during this campaign was that when it came to race relations, Kodak's only invention was the invention of color film. And other than that, they had done nothing to improve race relations. And uh, that was not appreciated in ever so proper Rochester, New York at, at the time. So that's that's kind of a, a, the very beginning or close to the very beginning of the use of stock proxies. I must say that, um, and this is a corollary to the rule that you referred to before, Luke, about when an issue drags on, it becomes a drag. Um, when you do an action against an opponent, if you continue to do that same sort of action, like going to, to uh, annual meetings, shareholder meetings, the opposition gets pretty good at handling or deflecting that kind of uh, tactic. And so I think these days, it's probably less effective to show up at annual meetings to protest a particular issue than it might have been some years ago. Or if there's an extraordinary situation, such as the emergency around the country having to do with foreclosed housing, which made the confrontation at the Wells Fargo annual meeting uh, something that was, was, was useful for common ground and resulted in some victory. Now, I mean, I think that's, I think that's a very good point. It did become, you know, particularly then through the Vietnam War and, and on, particularly now today around environmental issues. So oil companies uh, and kind of gas companies are very used to handling protesters at annual general meetings. I, I don't think banks are. And I think that was part of the success of the Wells Fargo and Deutsche Bank intervention. That That's not a world in the sense that 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 wasn't in their expected um, kind of responses that, that they're, they're used to handle. I think certain industries are much more used to this this kind of intervention. But but just thinking about nonviolent direct actions more more broadly, you know, we've got to we've got to act to bring about change. And there's a whole variety, a whole kind of. Uh, I think the the Einstein Institute lists 198 different kind of tactics uh, of, of forms of direct action you can use from marches to vigils to sit-ins, boycotts, rent strikes, these these kinds of things, and they've they are a key feature of of kind of more grassroots radical democratic politics. So Kathleen, in terms of you know th this often does taking part in direct actions, which can involve conflict, tension, speaking out, you know, and and speaking out of turn, 
you know, very these these are these aren't habitual for people. Um, this often can feel. I mean, I've been involved in it. You, there's a kind of pit in your stomach, and you feel a bit nervous. And you're like, ah, oh, can we really do this? You know, and that. So, how how do you get people to kind of feel comfortable in that space? Not necessarily comfortable. It's the wrong term, but like you know, it, that that is a. How do you get people to 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 do that? And is it only ever certain kinds of people, or is it kind of anyone can do that kind of stuff? Yeah, and I just want to point before I go there. One of the things that people always get wrong with organizing, if you say you are going to be an organizer, I am going to organize something, is you think that you're putting together pieces inside of a world that isn't already organized, right. and that's something people get wrong all the time. And the bottom line is the world around us is already organized and has been organized and the powers that be are organized. And if you, you need to understand that context in order to uh, try and build something or reorganize a group of people that have the power to uh, either disrupt that or challenge that, that dominant power uh, or structure that's around you. And so that's what that's what you're doing. And and yes, that does that when you do do that, when you do organize and you confront the way the world is already pre-organized around you, that causes a lot of conflict. Um, and that is about organizing people to help uh, to help people see that they can, in fact, break what we call breaking consent. And so part of this is that's it's it's getting people to uh, take public their pain. So, you know, when the foreclosure crisis did hit, uh, a lot of people were just mortified and embarrassed. They blamed their themselves. They turned their their, you know, anger inward. They felt they felt like, oh, I'm the only one. And so it's through our relational organizing that we take that pain public first and foremost. And. I say, oh, it's I lost my home. You also lost your home. It's not just me. And that's the that's the reorganizing that we do inside of a pre-organized system that was really there. It was put in place to crush people and to take advantage of of ordinary people and keep people separated and isolated. And so the way, first and foremost, that you get people to have the courage to act is you say, wow, that happened to me, too, or that happened to you as well. Uh, that's the first and saying, saying, you know, n- no, I'm not alone in this first and foremost. And then, and then you build some power around that and help and, and figure out, you know, what do people want to act on and what are they angry about? The person who understands this or understood this best and the best reading I've ever done on this is Frederick Douglass, um, The Limits of Tyrants. So in our organizing, I'm sure many of you have heard the power concedes nothing without a demand and never will. But you should read the whole essay because it is a masterclass in all of what we're talking about today. And the the line that's also really important in this is he says the limits of tyrants are prescribed by the endurance of those whom they oppress. And yes, the pre-organized society that we're working inside of, it starts first and foremost with that relational work so that people can even come to, oh, this actually isn't right. I want to do something about it. I am angry about this. Um, I want to act on this. And that, that, that that's the organizing work that it takes. Right. So that sense of I'm not alone, 
uh, I this isn't just private grief. This 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 is a shared story that we can hold together, and that the system is a recognition. It's not just my fault. There's a systemic um, problem here, which I'm subject to with these other people, and and that's the trigger which breaks the consent. There's a sense in which I'm with these people in this place, and how we're going to act together to change this system. Which I've up to that point. So in the in the subprime lending issue, if it's just my individual problem, then I'm somehow giving consent to the system, and I'm defined. I'm letting the system define the terms and conditions of my action. I lose my home. I've got to pay back the debt. I've got. Whereas if I break consent and through hearing these other stories and recognizing there's a community of people here, we can act together. It's we're defining the reality. This is wrong. And we're going to act together to change it. And it's the system which needs to change, not me. And I think that's really key in, in all social movement, organizing work. It, what, how, do was, how do we get people to see that there's a systemic structural problem here or institutional process problem um, rather than this, the kind of the way the system is set up to individualize people, but you're right. I think that that breaking consent is a key, key, key element to to this. So, do you, I mean just in relation to that? Because obviously, one of the ways you one can go is and and as you know, mentioned Frederick Douglass, and and then looking forward to something like the civil rights movement. Do you think there's ever a place for civil disobedience in community organizing work? It hasn't tended to move in that direction um other forms of direct action do what's what's your feeling about that kathleen and i'll turn to you sandy so i'm of the mind and the belief that all of our organizing is civil disobedience down to the very act of the relational meeting and down to the very act of going back to doing relational meetings is an incredibly beautiful subversive act of civil disobedience that uh, is is radical and in a world where dominant power keeps us apart in order to maintain the status quo, um, I think every single thing that we do is about civil disobedience. I think it's wonderfully put. I think the because it's a it's a deeper form of civil disobedience. It's a it's a refusal to let the basic structures of our. It's not you know I'm going to act against this law by sitting at a lunch counter, which is you know is a very significant and important act. It's that sense of I'm not going to be defined by the basic structures of our society, which says you are just alone. It's just you. You can't act. You're acted upon. Um, the world as it is is defined and ends reality. There can't be change other than the change that either the state or the market generate. And I think that that act of building relationship with others, building power, saying we can change, we can move from the world it is to the world it should be. And I, I think it's beautifully put. Sandy. Oh, yeah, Kathleen really did a great job with that. But when you asked the question, Luke, I thought what you were getting at was uh, civil disobedience that might result in being arrested and possibly jailed. Well, let me make a couple of quick comments. Uh, to follow up on what Kathleen said, um, Alinsky's in all the, the years that he organized and, and employed a lot of tough tactics, not one person that I am aware of, not one citizen person as part of the organizing effort ever was arrested and went to jail. 
And Alinsky was very conscious of this because, and this is this is uh, under the heading of doing things inside the experience of your own people. He felt that most people, whether middle class, working class, or poor, did not really want to be arrested and put in a jail. It's just some place that we don't particularly aspire to. Yes, Thoreau and other people, some of the civil rights stuff in the South used jailing to good uh, good effect. But Alinsky thought for the vast majority of people, that's not what would help build the organization. And yet, as Kathleen has said, a lot of Alinsky's actions were clearly not civil in the usual sense of the term. Uh, there were pickets of, uh, of African-Americans who were protesting housing discrimination by a slumlord owner in a, who lived in an all-white neighborhood. And so the, 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 the action was to have all African-Americans, this is back in the 60s, picket in front of this slum owner's house in his all-white neighborhood saying, did you know that uh, Mr. Brown, who lives here, is a slumlord owner? And it was all perfectly legal. The police were alerted beforehand that there would be pickets. And it was meant to embarrass the slumlord and to get his neighbors to say, we don't care what the issue is. We want these picketers out of our neighborhood. You do what you can to have to do to do this. So it's a good example of doing something within the law that was clearly uncivil in any meaningful sense of the term, uh, but yet along the lines of what Kathleen has said as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that that one of the other issues for, for Alinsky and, and more broadly was, you know, most working people a, the question of, you know, jail time goes on your record, is that going to affect your employment? And there's just very real economic costs to that, which have to be considered. He was kind of conscious of that. And then a lot of the kind of civil disobedience work of the 60s, which you, you know, you witnessed firsthand, Sandy, that was done by young people. You know, they weren't having to go to pick up kids from school. They weren't having to look after, you know, the, the mother, the grandmother, whoever it was stuck at home there was a whole set of broader obligations that um that the kind of jail time or, or those kind of highly disruptive tactics could generate they just weren't socially in a place to take that up and so there was that alertness of how do you do disruptive tactics that also paid attention to the the actual conditions that which people had to make a life through as well which which i think is is a key people can certain social movement circles there can be a kind of snootiness about this but I think actually there's a there's a, a, a attention to the reality of how people are making a life um, and, and their kind of other obligations and commitments is is actually um, needs to be kind of accounted for in, in these kinds of elements. I mean, talk, talking about that, then you know, obviously at the time that the um, Common Ground campaign was going, you had Occupy Wall Street in many ways addressing the same. Uh, kind of world of of this economic crisis and the plut plutocracy and the kind of dominance of finance capitalism. How would you contrast your use of direct action with kind of what they were doing? And any broader reflections you have, Kathleen, on this kind of contrast between Common Ground's kind of approach and and someone like Occupy Wall Street? Yeah. So I think uh, along these lines, and the reason I wanted to bring it back to power, and the reason I bring it back to uh, the need to really understand how the world around you is organized, and then you you either choose to act 
in that or not is because a lot of organizing I see, even the way that sort of we think about even looking at the words civil disobedience, a lot of organizing is unfortunately reenactment, which frustrates me quite a bit because we're not teaching these universals of, and that's, that's what I see as my job as an organizer is to teach the universals. And then within the particular context, uh, which is different from the sixties, which is different from the Alinsky era. How do you break consent? How do you act? How do you think creatively rather than reenact this thing? Like, like somehow there's a prescription going forward. And so I see a lot of organizing is simply reenactment, which just doesn't, it doesn't actually work. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I do remember meeting with Occupy Wall Street and uh, they simply told me, yes, you know, oh, you know, one of the things that we did is we marched around the empty A.O. Smith building, the old car company, because it was owned by Bank of America. And I was like, was anybody from Bank of America there? Was there a target? Was there anyone? Um, and there wasn't. And I'm not blaming Occupy Wall Street you know, and I think, and we could get into a much larger conversation about the connection between protest and power organizing. Um, I think Occupy Wall Street was a great example of large-scale public protest, which, which really all that does is it 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 shifts public opinion. It shines a very broad light. It shifted the conversation nationally in a way that was helpful when you're building a power organization, when people think it's their fault to be able to see a large protest movement that says it's not your fault, it's the big banks does help. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, though, there's got to be a power organization that can get to the table, get recognition, negotiate a deal, make a deal, and then keep a deal. Mm-hmm. And public protests and public you know, shifting of opinion is it only does so much. And then you you have to have a power organization that can get to the table and make something happen. Yeah. Um, and that's what I saw Common Ground do. And a lot of our conversation was what today was about. You have to be able to build that power, do it over time and actually cut a deal uh, to make some real change. And that that takes a power organization. And the last thing I'll say is it's not I th- Again, when we look at the world and how how it's organized, it is organized by dominant power. And so I think a lot of the reasons why there's a lot of organizing reenactment is because dominant power has co-opted these stories and and have and there's a terrible there's terrible education out there for people. And that's that's I view that as quite frankly, my role uh, as an organizer is to help bring people back and then figure out you know what's happening in my context and then how to how to fight in a way that's not reenactment, but it's really about power and making something happen. No, I think that's right. So I, I, I've often observed there's a, some, yeah, I love your term reenactment there. It, it, I, I sometimes call it um, kind of, it's either just political theater um, in the, in the worst sense of that term, uh, or it's a kind of um, politics as therapy. I feel I've done something, you know, I've got arrested in this kind of tokenistic way. Nothing's really happened. I'm released. There's no charge. You know, power can completely absorb that. Um, and there's no real effective change. It's not linked up to any effective change, but somehow I feel I've stuck it to the man by going on this protest. And it it's, it's much more to do with how it makes me feel and the kind of compensations of protest rather than protest as part of 
a broader strategy for change and, and how that links up. But yeah, so I, I think that's a, a key key kind of element that the, the reduction of certain kinds of direct action and tactics to becoming merely symbolic. I mean, obviously, the symbolic is very key to a lot of this, but it's it's when they're just simply symbolic, it's just reduced to the symbolic, is problematic. I'm of the mind that this all happens again in, in a broader ecosystem, which is why I'm, again, going back to you have to understand how things are already pre-organized. And I think our work happens inside of a, of a larger change ecosystem. For example, Massachusetts and GBIO, Greater Boston Interfaith Organization, was integral in passing uh, in 2018 statewide landmark criminal justice reform. I really, truly do not believe that that would have happened in Massachusetts if it were not for Black Lives Matter and the protest shifting public opinion. This year, we just passed landmark police accountability and reform in Massachusetts. GBIO is a power organization that has this depth of power and depth of relationships. We would not have been able to do that if it not if it were not for the um, protests in the wake of the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey, and others. But it takes a power organization to build on that and make that happen. And so, you know, I I view these things as a critical, they're critically connected and very, very important. And oftentimes dismissed by the kinds of organizations, uh, sometimes by the IAF, to be frank. I mean, obviously we touched on here a little bit, but want to kind of turn the focus away from common ground and think about, and you've made this very important point, Kathleen, about how the world is organized and how dominant power organizes. So it's not just those engaged in democratic change who are using strategy and tactics. Um, the, those who already have power use strategy and tactics to keep power and refuse change, resist change, and undermine those acting against them. And some of the kind of classics are referred to as much putting under the heading of the seven Ds, deflection, delaying, deceiving, denying, discrediting, and destroying. And Kathleen, you've, you mentioned another, which is co-opting. Did you encounter any of these in relation to the banks? Oh, yeah. Uh, it was funny, you know, when we started meeting with all of the banks and we ended up engaging with five of the largest banks in the world, we were like, did they all go to the same school of thought? Like, they're all acting the exact same. Um they were the nicest people. They would send us the nicest people in the world. Oh, how are you? We love Common Ground. It's so great to meet you. It's so great to be here. It's wonderful, um, which is very disarming for our leaders, right? And it is. It's strategic. It's their tactic. They're using tactics. And so we have to teach, again, what's happening in these meetings, um, I mean, there was an incredible story where uh, Allie Gardner, who was my colleague, and this was years after the fight um, with the banks, but a lot of the leaders had learned a great deal and they were trying to deal with a home that was owned by Bank of America. Um, and they had this meeting at St. Catherine Drexel. They wanted to get the home donated to actually be, in fact, rehabbed. And they demanded a meeting with, with Bank of America. We had a decent relationship, but they still pulled stuff like this. So they showed up and they brought this big tray of popcorn <laughs> and said, oh, we're so happy to be meeting with you. Here's this big tray of popcorn. Um, isn't this so nice? And it's just the most insulting, strange thing. But 
once you start to teach people in these actions, and that's why going into action and then evaluating and learning is so important, you learn each time how to break consent. And this was, again, years afterwards, after the leaders have been through many meetings with the banks, they were able to see this, smell it out, and then sim- and then break consent in a much uh, more in a much stronger, confident way, right. and simply stare at the popcorn and say, "No, we're not here to eat your popcorn. <laughs> no, thank you." And and simply, you know, breaking consent can be, and that's that's an act of civil disobedience as well. Simply saying, "No, I'm not going to eat the treat you brought for me." Right. Uh, it, it's a very powerful act. Um, and so, yes, they follow a lot of the same strategies. They think about us, they think about our interests, how to help or hurt us, you know, go after us, go after our clergy, our member congregations at worst to hurt our self interest, or at best be super nicey nice and try to puff us up uh, to uh, help our self interest, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. Just, uh, just on that note, the, the, particularly in when I was doing some organising work in London, um, around the city of London, which is a huge corporation of the city of London, it's kind of huge power in London, which has a massive PR department to keep itself out of the headlines and out of the news. So it's one thing I learned through that that power always wants to render itself invisible. Real power holders want to render themselves invisible; they don't want PR. Um, but, but one of the things they we had this meeting with them. And uh, they'd got all these banks together and they'd sent all their corporate responsibility people. Um, and because this was a corporate responsibility, I, it was their kind of philanthropic. And there was all sorts of things about, you know, how can we give a grant to do this? And, and I was like, this is just co-option kind of like there. And it was immediately a sidelining over to the philanthropic side of things, not we're trying to get you to take responsibility for the irresponsible lending practices that you're engaged in and are supported by, you know, the broader city of London kind of framework. And, and so they, that, that was a classic case of deflection. This is a, this is a social problem and we have people and we do all this volunteer, they get on telling us about all their workers doing this volunteering. And it's like, that's really not what we're here to discuss. That's irrelevant to proceedings. So, Sandy, uh, just to close us out, any any final reflections on the Common Ground campaign? The Common Ground, really, for a young organization, it still is not much more than 10 years old now, uh, 12, 13 years old, really deserves a ton of credit for changing part of the discussion on the foreclosure issue in Milwaukee and probably saving a large historic neighborhood, meaning Sherman Park, from much worse future. Uh, So all in all, it was a major accomplishment and a good example of community organizing at its best. Very, very good. That's excellent. So Kathleen and and Sandy, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for being on the Listen, Organize, Act podcast and this terrific conversation around strategy, tactics, uh, and action. Uh, It's been great to, to be with you today. Thank you, Luke. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Listen, Organize, Act podcast, in which I explored the relationship between tactics, strategy, and direct action in organizing, and how they work together to generate meaningful democratic change. This podcast is a collaboration between the Industrial Areas Foundation and the Keenan Institute for Ethics at Duke University. 
As with other episodes, you can download readings directly relevant to this episode from the website. That's www.ormondcenter.com backslash listen-organize-act-podcast. Do sign up at the website for news about events and resources related to the podcast or to send me questions. For now, let me say goodbye and I hope you join me next time as I continue this journey through the different elements of community organising and how it embodies a distinctive vision of democratic politics. Mm -hmm.